Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Correa, still work here at Wire, Q1 2019. <laughs> also, I'm joined by my colleague, Louis Abood, head of research at Wire Capital. Thanks for joining the show as a co-host again, Louis. Thank you. Pleasure yeah. to be here as always. Yes, yes. Uh, repeat co-host. I think it's time to promote you to just host <laughs> at this point. And, you know, most importantly, today I'm joined by founder and president of CoinList, Andy Bromberg. Andy, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. You are kind of unlike some other guests that we've had on the show. I think typically we talk to a lot of founders of, you know, protocol level projects and some dApps and things like that. And then, of course, you're an entrepreneur yourself, but you're in the business of helping manage token sales for issuers, right? So before we talk about CoinList and, and how you got into CoinList, let's go over and uh, let's go over your background, right? And how you got into crypto. What inspired you to get into this space? Yeah, absolutely. So I got into crypto back in 2012, 2013. I was studying math, computer science. I took a class from Balaji Srinivasan, who's now the CTO of Coinbase, in school. And he just convinced a bunch of us that Bitcoin was going to be meaningful. And we didn't believe him at first. He kept saying, buy Bitcoin, pay attention to it. And uh, and we thought, you know, this is magic, internet money, we're not interested. And then eventually he he convinced us that it was going to be really interesting. And so at that point, a group of us started what became the Stanford Bitcoin group. And we studied the applications of Bitcoin. We built some cool products. We did a bunch of evangelism. And while I was still in school with that group of people, we went around and, and did a bunch of work in what was really at that point, just the Bitcoin space. There weren't a lot of other assets out there yet. And then that kind of launched my my interest in crypto. Mm -hmm. And Stanford Bitcoin Club at the, at that time, I'm not sure if you crossed paths with Nadav or, or Jesse from uh, you know who later on went on to found Bloom. But take me through you know what was flying through your heads at that time. Were there like earlier projects that you guys worked on together? You know before everyone split off to start their own companies, I suppose. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Both of those, Jesse at Bloom and Nadav at Dharma, uh, we were actually all in the same class. So we all knew each other. There were a bunch of other people too. Uh, and two of the the founding members of the Stanford Bitcoin group were John Nallen, who co-founded Bloom with Jesse. Mm. So Bloom kind of in some way emerged out of that group as well. Yeah, there were a couple early projects. One was a project called TriBTC, built by Pat Briggs and Matt Riles. And, uh, and it was an onboarding mechanism for Bitcoin, trying to help people that did not know anything about crypto get their first few Satoshis and maybe donate them to charity and, and go through an onboarding flow with a really good user experience that got bought by Coinbase. And those two worked there for a little while. Uh, another project that came out of that group was BlockScore, started by Alan and John in the Stanford Bitcoin group, which was an identity verification service that raised money, went through YC. And then much of that team ended up working on Bloom afterwards. So those were a couple of the early projects that came out of that. Also, we did a bunch of academic research. We did a bunch of advocacy work. Uh, so it was really across the board in terms of what we did. Mm -hmm. And did you go on to find CoinList immediately after graduating from Stanford? No, I didn't. So I went after school and unfortunately did not even manage to make it to graduation, but left <laughs> school and, uh, and started a company called Sidewire in the media space, the political media space, uh, which was a very different experience. And then once that wrapped up, I went with the rest of the team, went and started CoinList. I'd left to start Sidewire in 2014. The reason I did not go full-time into crypto then was that at that point, I was looking at this and saying, startups are really hard. Almost all of them fail. And I'd like to do something in crypto. But at this point, I can't tell whether or not it's just going to be Bitcoin forever mm. or if there's going to be a bunch of different crypto assets that end up existing in this world. And anything I could think of working on in the crypto space relied on one of those two outcomes being true. So it felt like I was taking this already massive failure rate for startups and then adding a coin flip on the end of it. That if I worked on something and had the wrong thesis going in, that it would just kill the business right off the bat. And so I said, you know what, I, I don't feel like I know what the future looks like here. It's too early. So I'm going to go do something else. And then hopefully at some point I'll return. And, uh, and three years later, uh, there I was uh, helping to start CoinList. Yeah. And your thesis for there's going to be a multitude of coins and not just Bitcoin to rule them all. I guess that's kind of the foundation for CoinList. Yeah, that's, that's one of the key pieces that there is going to be competition in the space between different blockchains, different assets. And even on top of that, there will be a number that have different uses. Now, I do think it's still undecided what that number ends up being, how many of these tokens end up existing and flourishing in the long term. But to me, it certainly feels like it is more than one mm -hmm. uh, is the answer. And so that is, of course, part of the thesis of CoinList that we help these projects go out and try and be successful instead of just supporting a single blockchain from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. 
So did you come to AngelList or the other founders with the idea of CoinList? Who kind of came up with the idea of, uh, were all you guys like sitting in a room together and you came up with the idea for CoinList? Like take me through that moment of inception. Yeah, no, I can take no credit for the original idea there. CoinList actually emerged as a collaboration between Protocol Labs, who built Filecoin, and AngelList. And the way that happened was that they were gearing up for the Filecoin token sale and they wanted to build a little platform to run the token sale on and handle compliance and the transactions and all these different pieces that you need to run a successful token sale. And they went to AngelList, who has a lot of experience, a decade of experience, running online fundraising processes and compliance processes and said, hey, we need some help with this. And so they jointly worked on the first version of CoinList. And then midway through the process, everyone stepped back and said, wow, this is really hard. It's costing us a lot of product money, a lot of legal money to make this happen. And every single token issuer is going to need this exact same set of services. This feels like a business. And so they made the decision to spin out CoinList. And so at that point, that's when I came in with the rest of the founders of CoinList uh, as that founding team to go and take this off as an independent business and run it on its own. And we spun out of AngelList towards the end of 2017 to, uh, to fulfill that mission. Mm-hmm. So today at a high level, what are the components of CoinList? Yeah, CoinList uh, has a few components. Today, it really centers around what I would say are the two core columns of our business. And we've got a third coming up we can talk about as well. The first column is helping with fundraising in some way. And so we've got a couple of products that that help with that. One is something we call Token Sale Manager, which is a purely white-labeled token sale infrastructure product to help with things like compliance due diligence on investors, to help with things like facilitating transactions, to help with things like document signing. So really just kind of the nuts and bolts of, you know, running a token sale. And we white label that product. We work with dozens and dozens of issuers on that. Our second product is similar, but also includes some marketing that we're able to do. So we can market deals out on our newsletter and say, hey, we're, we're you know, working with this issuer and put them on our website. Uh, and so that's the second category in that first bucket of helping people run successful token sales. The second column of our business is around building community now and helping these token networks grow what they have and grow their networks. And that's something that, you know, we started off helping mainly with token sales. What we kept hearing from our issuer customers was building communities really hard. We need help. And so we realized we could help with that. And today that's two products. One is our airdrops product. So for example, we ran the Definity airdrop and helped them give away $35 million worth of tokens to tens of thousands of users. And so we've got infrastructure to support airdrops. And then we also recently launched a hackathon product, which is really interesting. The first one was with ZeroX. Uh, the second one running right now is with New Cipher, And that's all about building developer communities. So specifically, how can we support these projects in building out their developer communities, getting more activity on their network? And what we do is we run online hackathons where people from all around the world can participate, work on projects, attend workshops, submit what they've done and have a chance to earn prizes. And we're working with some really great issuers on that right now. And so those today are the two columns of our business. We're working towards in the future being able to offer more on the secondary side as well and liquidity for these tokens aside from just that primary issuance that we helped mm. with originally. But that is, uh, that's not yet in the portfolio. That's, that's still yet to come. Right. So just jumping back to the, the first component, the white label product, is that basically where a token issuer, they won't necessarily rely on your website and platform directly. They'll sort of have an experience that feels very much their own and it's really just you guys providing the back-end components? Uh, that's right, yeah. It, it varies in exactly how it is implemented, mm-hmm. but the effect there is that it doesn't feel like you're doing something on CoinList. It feels yeah. like you're going to that issuer and yes, we happen to be running all these services on the back-end to handle compliance on the investors and all these different pieces, which is a lot of work and something that not every issuer should need to build mm-hmm. on their own from the ground up. But yeah, the point is that they're running that by themselves. And just quickly on the the community building aspect. So I think that the airdrops thing is really interesting. How do you think about getting the tokens to the right individuals? Is that like, you know, I guess there's a question of like, what is like a quality airdrop? What will actually be value accretive to the community? How do you think about that? It's a really interesting question. And for us, that is really an interplay with the issuer on Mm -hmm. what exactly they're looking for. Every issuer wants different people. Some of them want to build awareness and want to airdrop to as many people as possible, regardless of who they are. Some people want a really targeted airdrop. They want to reach Wikipedia editors or data scientists or Mm -hmm. software engineers. We've helped them build targeting tools for those sorts of airdrops. And some of them, Definity is a great example, want to target their community. 
they want to reward their existing community for being supporters of the project. And so they do it just to that targeted audience. But yeah, I think the concept of an airdrop, if you generalize it a little bit, it's really just a marketing effort, right? It's a way to build awareness or reward early users. And everyone has different objectives with those marketing efforts. So for us, it's about going in, understanding the needs of the issuer, and then figuring out how we can best use our targeting mechanisms and our infrastructure to support that. Yeah, the airdrop product is really interesting. This might account for all of the random shit coins I receive in my multitude of uh, Ethereum addresses. Not through CoinList, obviously. Not, uh, obviously, never through <laughs> Well, and part of that, that's actually a really interesting point that's yeah. worth talking about. The original airdrops that we saw were straight into your wallet. Mm -hmm. Who knows what? You didn't sign up. For us, those airdrops are all opt-in. So we may help them reach the users that they want to reach or reach their community or do the communications. But tokens don't just show up in your wallet. You go on and you say, oh, I now have learned about this token. I've understood a little bit about it. Now I can click this button and get tokens back out. So it's more of an opt-in process where those leads end up just being higher quality leads because they've gone through a process rather than just getting tokens into their wallet. Yeah. And then ostensibly those tokens will have more value too, if they're with the right participants mm -hmm. who might use them in the, uh, in the future for the right objectives. Okay. That all makes sense to me. You must collect like a lot of data then on individual addresses because let's say, you know, there's a new data science oriented project and they want to distribute to only data scientists. Maybe you're looking at who's interacted with the Numerai contract in the past to figure out a list of data scientists in the crypto ecosystem. That data set itself is is pretty valuable. Is that in itself like something you will use in the future for different purposes? And yeah, it's, it's like a valuable layer, I think, even for building reputation via CoinList. Yeah, so it's generally something we've stayed away from so far, and we're figuring out how to best use that. But we care deeply about the privacy of those users. Mm -hmm. So just because they've participated in one thing or gone through one process does not mean that they have opted into something else. Mm -hmm. And so we have we've kind of left that on its own and said, you may get tokens into these wallets. We're not going to assume anything about those wallets or tell that to other people or, or anything like that. So we've been very careful around that. But I agree, it's really valuable. And I think in certain cases, if users do opt in and say, I'm raising my hand as a data scientist and you know, in the future, let me know when there are data science focused projects out there. Absolutely, that's something that we'd want to do and be able to give people value. And I think on airdrops, that's one of the things that's so interesting about these targeted airdrops is that you can reward someone just for being who they are, right? If someone's a data scientist or they're an engineer or they're even just in a certain country that some issuer wants to target, and you can give someone a reward just for something innate about them, not even that they've actually done something. That's a really interesting move and a really interesting way to build attention around a project and the right audiences. Hmm. I think I might be jumping ahead a little bit here because this kind of gets a bit into the securities laws questions, but we're talking about community building and I think it's worthwhile so I've seen with some other token sales, basically the terms of the, the sale have said that you have to participate in this network and we're selling you these tokens on the basis that you're not a passive investor, you're a user of the network. Have you guys worked with similar situations in the past? How, how do you think about all that? Yeah, we have yet to get comfortable with any so-called utility token offerings or non-securities offerings on our platform. I think there's a lot of interesting thinking behind it. A lot of it resonates mm. on kind of a policy reasoning perspective. Why, what are these laws trying to get at for securities, making sure that investors are sophisticated? Are there other ways to get to that? But we, we haven't yet gotten comfortable with any offerings of non-securities on our platform. We'd love to. There's some that we're talking to that we think may get there at some point. But to date, all the offerings on CoinList have been offerings of securities. And it's just something that we we haven't been able to get over up to this point. And is, I mean, if you just put the securities law question to one side and think about community building, you know, I guess there could be some value in basically selecting purchases based on their ability and willingness to add value to the network. Is that something that you guys would pursue as part of your platform around kind of requiring that and maybe even monitoring it as well? Yeah, it's something we'd be happy to do. We haven't yet had issuers request that mm. because ultimately what we've seen is that when issuers go to fundraise, they want to raise as much money as they can. And so they don't want to exclude participants. There's a few kind of edge cases on that, but for the most part, for a fundraising process, these issuers just want to raise money. And so they're they're not necessarily going for, they want to target those people, but they'll also take anyone else that wants to invest as well. I think that the sales that we've seen in this space, where they have had those sorts of requirements for usage, have been much more focused around using that as a justification for selling these yep. things as non-securities, rather than 
doing it just so that they can get those sorts of investors on their product. I think you're probably right about that. So I'd love to understand your, uh, let's call it sales cycle a little bit more. Let's say a certain entrepreneur approaches you, he has a great team behind him, great idea, but kind of a blank slate when it comes to how he is going to deal with capital formation. And he has no idea how to structure his token sale compliantly. He doesn't even know how to model the economics of the token. What are like the first sort of questions that you ask him and you know, how do you guide him through running a compliant token sale? Yeah. So I think the way a lot of this starts and, you know, we have to be careful. We don't provide deal structuring or anything like that for these issuers, but we do talk to them and try and tell them best practices and tell them what we're seeing in the space that could help make them successful. And we want to be a trusted resource for these issuers as much as we can. So we often, to your question, spend a lot of time with issuers before there's even a hint of a deal that we might do with them just to help them along the way and make sure that the good people in the space are, are getting the information they need to be successful. And I think a lot of it goes back to us thinking about what diligence we expect investors to do on projects. And for smart crypto investors, our framework for how they do diligence breaks down into a few categories. The first is four types of quick diligence that you would do on any investment, any startup investment, regardless whether it's a token or not, which is the team. Is it a strong team? The product? Is the product compelling? The market? Are they attacking a big market? And the deal terms. What are the terms of the deal? Does the investment actually make sense? So those are four things, team, product, market, deal, that investors look at for any startup and should look at for token issuances as well. On top of that, I think there's a couple pieces of diligence that smart investors do on token sales that don't necessarily apply to normal startup equity investments. One is the legal structure. You know, if you invest in the series A or the seed round for a startup, it's unlikely that they're innovating much on the legal structure of that deal. Everyone uses everyone's docs are a little bit different, but everyone uses functionally the same structure. And investors have to get comfortable in this space with the level of innovation that's happening on the legal structuring of these deals. So that's a piece of diligence we expect people to do. And then the last piece is the token economics. It's a big topic we can talk more about, but and something that doesn't really exist in equity financings, but does exist in, in token sales. A couple of the, the pieces of token economics that we think matter are, one, if this network is successful, will the token actually accrue value, which is not always true. And then two, are the incentives on the network appropriate? So are the good actors appropriately incentivized to do the right things in the network? Are the bad actors appropriately disincentivized from doing bad things to attack the network? And all of that fits under this kind of umbrella of token economics. And that's stuff that we, we expect investors to look at. So we'll often sit down with issuers and say, here's our list of six things that we think investors are going to look at when they look at your token sale, team, product, market, deal terms, token economics, legal structure. And we talk them through those and explain them a little bit about what investors are looking for and what we hear from the market. And then we can talk about best practices on each of those items. But that framework of, of six things, uh, and I know it's a little bit of a list, but that framework, I think, is helpful for talking to token issuers about what they should be focused on and the, the items that they really need to nail down in advance of going out and trying to raise capital. And mm -hmm. do you expect them to produce some kind of documentation that runs through all that? We're open to whatever these token issuers want to do. I do think that, again, savvy investors, those are the things that they're looking at in this space. So having ready answers for that, whether it's in the form of a document or a presentation or really straightforward back and forth conversation is just important. But you know, fundraising styles differ project to project. So we let them do whatever they, they think is best. So team product market and deal, like you said, that's all sort of traditional on the legal structure. And uh, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into legal structure and uh, token economics. Obviously, the regulatory landscape has shifted dramatically since 2017. You can't just put up a website and, uh, you know, pedal tokens to non-KYC investors and whatnot. What are sort of the, and you, you're probably a little sensitive about what you can actually recommend issuers to do, but what are the trendy legal structures to use right now? What sort of exemptions are you utilizing that the SEC has put forth? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for calling that out. This is, of course, not legal advice, but happy to talk about best practices and what we're seeing. I think um, what we've seen is that for us to get comfortable, and again, you know, to the, the question earlier, these token issuances unless you have an incredibly compelling argument to the contrary, are offerings of securities. So you need to structure them as offerings of securities. And in the United States, that means one of two things. It either means registering your token offering, which is effectively will result in doing a public offering of some sort, which really no tokens have done so far, or using an exemption to sell it, an exemption from registration. 
And the most common exemption that we see for token issuances is what's called a Reg D 506C exemption, which requires the issuer to ensure and take reasonable steps to ensure that the investors in the sale are accredited investors, that they meet the standard of net worth or income to invest in the token sale. And that's the most common one we see. There are a variety of other ones. We can definitely talk through those, but that's kind of the biggest piece. And for a lot of these tokens, it's tough because they want their token to be a non-security. And they think there's an argument that at some point that token is not going to be a security at some point in the future. And so in terms of structure, what we see is back in 2017, this concept of a SAFT came out, a simple agreement for future tokens, which was effectively a document, a piece of paper that you were buying as an investor that was a security, definitively a security, that at some point would give you a right to or would dividend out tokens that were non-securities at some point in the undetermined future. But that was a way to structure these as securities offerings, where at some point in the future, what people would have is the non-security ultimate ideal of that token. And that came out in 2017. Filecoin sold SAFTs on CoinList. And what's interesting to me is that the name of that has changed. Some people use different names for these sorts of structures now or structure them slightly differently. The, obviously, the documents have changed a lot in the last couple of years. But that core concept, instead of selling tokens, selling a document, a piece of paper that at some point will result in the buyer getting tokens out the other end, and at some point those tokens being non-securities that come out, that concept is stuck around and I would say is really still the most common approach that people take to structuring these deals. Again, we see them called SAFT. Sometimes we see them called deferred purchase of token agreements. Sometimes they've got all sorts of different names, but that core concept, sell a security at some point, earn out non-security tokens is still the most common structure that we see in the space. Do you think that, that like we're going to get to the point where it's worthwhile doing that? I mean, obviously you need solid regulated infrastructure for these things to trade and whatnot like do you think that this space will eventually evolve into registering as securities offerings or that they'll probably continue along the current path yeah and, and just to hone in on one point there which which you noted there but i think it's important for the audience is just because you don't register does not mean that what you're doing isn't allowed you're allowed to register or exempt the offering from yeah. registration those are both legitimate legal paths for securities offerings in crypto land in you know the non-crypto world, you can register or exempt. So the question is, does it make sense to go up to that kind of registration level and stop using exemptions at some point? I think it will for a lot of tokens. There are a lot of projects working on that in one way or another. The burden is way higher. So there's reporting burdens, there's things that you have to do as an issuer for registered security. There are of course upsides that come with that to your point, more liquidity, more access to certain exchanges that may be able to trade the asset, but there's a big burden that comes with it. And part of the challenge there is that it is not always clear how those burdens apply to token networks. They were not written for token networks. They were written for equity issuing companies. And, uh, and so there's some open questions around how that is handled. There's some other open questions around things like custody of these registered securities and a few other things that are up in the air. But there are a bunch of projects working on it with really good counsel, really good teams. And I would expect in the next year to see some fully registered token offerings or tokens out there in the world. In the next year? I would expect so. I would hope so. I think you mentioned this slightly earlier, but are all of the offerings that CoinList have helped issuers with, are they all utilizing Reg D at the moment? Not all of them are using Reg D. Some are using Reg S. So this is another interesting exemption from registration. Reg S and, and a commonly misunderstood one. So if you talk to a lot of people in crypto, and certainly a year or two ago, everyone said Reg S means if you sell to only international investors outside of the US and don't sell to US investors, you don't need to worry about securities law and just sell them to anyone, but just don't touch the US. That is not what Reg S says. What Reg S says is if you're selling to investors outside the US, don't worry about the US standards for selling to them. So don't worry about a million dollars in net worth or $200,000 in income, which are the US accreditation standards. Instead, worry about the securities laws of the countries that the investors live in that you're issuing to. So if you're selling to a UK investor under Reg S, make sure that they meet the UK requirements for purchasing that security. If you're selling to a German investor, do the same, a Singaporean investor, do the same. And so that's what Reg S means. And, uh, and so we've seen a bunch of issuers using Reg S to sell to international investors. Coinlist has built out infrastructure for the top several dozen countries in terms of token investors to check against the standards in those jurisdictions. So you can actually flip a switch on CoinList if you're running a Reg S offering and your counsel's agreed to this, that when an investor from Singapore goes through the CoinList flow or the, the token sale manager flow on CoinList, 
uh, they will go through a Singaporean specific flow with Singaporean standards as opposed to US standards. So that's the other most common exemption that, that we've seen people using. Other ones that, that happen, Reg CF, crowdfunding, which has a limit of $1.07 million raised, but enables you to sell to unaccredited investors even in the United States under some, some specific structures. We've seen that used a fair amount. And then the last one that I think we will see more of, and it's a little bit of a bridge to this registered securities world, is Reg A, Reg A plus offerings, which is colloquially called a mini IPO, where you are using exemption, Reg A, but you're effectively putting these securities out there to accredited and non-accredited investors. It's still burdensome compared to a Reg D offering, but way less burdensome than a full registration. Are there extra ongoing disclosure requirements? Ongoing disclosure requirements, absolutely. So it's just kind of a pared down version Mm -hmm. of a full registration. So your framework for facilitating token sales for issuers, you're basically assuming that all of these things are securities and utilizing some sort of SEC uh, exemption to execute. Like this is completely different from token foundry standards where I think they try to fit all of the tokens into this utility token framework that they've designed and not consider them securities at all and then you know distribute them broadly to investors. How do you think about that standard and how do you think about your market position versus Token Foundry? Which, by the way, I'm, I'm not sure. Is that still a thing? <laughs> it's still a thing anymore <laughs> because I was on their website and it looked like they hit the restart button because they're asking for my registration email once again. So, Yeah, that, I think that question of where they're at aside, uh, the I do think it's it's interesting and again, if, if we take a step back here, the SEC and securities law in the United States and abroad is built around protecting investors. That is what it is all about, is how do we make sure that investors don't get scammed or defrauded or invest what they shouldn't be investing in certain very risky assets. And so all of these laws and required disclosures and exemptions and registration is all about protecting investors. If you really get to the core of it, what that's resulted in is a massive array of laws and regulations and rules that have come out, you know, mostly at some point in the past hundred years or so. A hundred years ago, token networks did not exist. And so the rules were not built for them. So if you go to that policy reasoning, there are some really interesting arguments around protecting investors around things like a so-called utility token offering, where you limit the amount people can invest to what they could actually use on the network. You make sure they're using it. You make sure they're appropriately informed about everything. That resonates with that policy reasoning of protecting investors. That goes back to the original goals there. What we haven't been able to get over is that it meets that policy reasoning and is also still in accord with the laws and regulations that have come out in the past hundred years. So I'm optimistic that at some point there will be sufficient clarity that that sort of offering is something that we'll be able to get comfortable with because it does, it genuinely, in my eyes, does meet the goals of the SEC and of securities laws and regulations as a whole. We just haven't been able to reconcile it with the laws that have been created since then. And, and our view is meeting that policy reasoning is not good enough. You, you need to meet the policy reasoning and be uh, in alignment with the laws that exist today. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've, we've run these all as, as offerings of securities. We tend to work with issuers that, that have that as a priority. I admire the work that Token Foundry and others have done on trying to set standards for that. I'm optimistic that at some point, there will be rules made or or some sort of guidance that allows for things like that. But to date, we haven't been able to get comfortable with that. Yeah, and there's this uh, sort of ironic tension between with the, the uh, token foundry model where you can have a token design that very clearly accrues value, right? Which probably creates an expectation of profit. Or you can try and sort of remove the security-like elements from a token design, which might actually put the purchases of that token in a more vulnerable position because it's not an unfettered design and it's been intentionally adapted in some ways to actually accrue less economics. How significant is is that dynamic in you guys sort of deciding to work with things that are sort of explicitly securities? Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I think for us, that's, that's a little bit more of a back burner consideration mm. relative to us just reading the black letter of the law and not being able to get comfortable with these offerings in the first place. But I think if that if that law were a little more open, then that would start to become a more real consideration for us of the dividing line for each token on a case-by-case basis, the facts and circumstances of that individual token. But for us right now, it's, it's actually a little bit of an easier decision. We don't have to get into that nitty-gritty, does yeah. that economic design cause an issue because we just see it as, as not uh, something we get comfortable with in the first place. 
Interesting. I guess um, taking a step back from a high level, you know, I think Coinless is in a really interesting position as a company. You know, on this podcast, we talk to a lot of individual projects in the space, but you have a kind of helicopter view on the investor activity and capital raising activity that's going on. So I think uh, you can provide a unique perspective as to maybe, you know, the developments in the market. I think an interesting angle to look at would be how your investor base has evolved over time. I don't know if you'd be happy to talk about that. So you guys launched in, I think you said August of 2017. That's right. So how, yeah, how has the kind of profile of the investors that you see coming through the platform changed? If you're happy to talk about the growth numbers as well, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, it's it's been a actually in an interesting way, not that crazy what has happened to the platform. It follows the narrative of crypto, right? In 2017, ICOs were this bleeding edge thing that really just people that had some sort of experience in crypto were interested in. So you definitely, almost definitely already owned Bitcoin or Ethereum and had been involved in the space in some way when you were investing in 2017. That's changed a lot in the last year and a half. And now we have many more people that are coming on and signing up and maybe have never owned crypto before. Or people that are coming on and signing up that are more of a you know, non-crypto financial institution that are interested in, in token sales. And so it really is just a matter of the base broadening. Um, but that does not, and this is important, does not necessarily mean that the amount of capital that's going into token sales has gone up in the last year and a half. In fact, quite the opposite. What we've seen is that the 2017 cycle was just a really hyped up cycle for token sales, as we're all aware. And uh, and it was not going to last in the way that that it was running. And so we've seen the dynamics around the market change a lot in the last year and a half. But at the same time, the base is broadening. And so that's something that gives us a lot of confidence in the space moving forward. We don't need, and our business didn't rely on, and still does not rely on, 2017 levels of hype for it to be functional and do well. And our view was what we do need to see, though, is more and more people getting interested in the token sales space and coming in. And that's the foundation that will build up this being a really massive industry in the long term. And that's certainly been happening the last year and a half, but mm. less so on on kind of more and more capital pouring in. And do you guys know how many different individual investors your software has touched, whether it's white labeling or directly through the platform? Yeah, we've got all those numbers and it does go up a lot, token sale to token sale. But mm. I think it's also important that every token sale is very different. So some token sales are going for a small number of high dollar investors that are going to fill it around quickly and you know not really distribute widely. Some token sales are going for as many low dollar investors as possible and distributing their network out to as many people as they can without getting big capital commitments from any one investor. And so it really is kind of a, an issuer by issuer strategy question. And we do think there's potential now for in terms of we don't think token sale generation, the amount of money they raise, numbers are going to be up this year from 2017 mm-hmm. anyway. But we do imagine that there are some offerings that will be able to get more investors now than any uh, token sales were able to get in 2017. So the number of investors will go up, but the average dollar invested will go down this year relative to 2017, even relative to last year. Yeah. Something we touched on briefly before we went on air was the the dynamics around sizing the rounds and how many rounds a project might do. Yeah. If you could just talk about what you've seen there, I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. In 2017, everyone basically did one big token sale or if they, many of them did two, they did a private one single private pre-sale and then marked it up 20 X a massive <laughs> public sale. Yeah. Often irresponsibly priced in my personal view. And so that happened a lot. I don't think that was ever a sustainable model and that's mm. not how funding, you know, if we take a step back, tokens are not that different from any other sort of thing that you fundraise for, whether it's debt or equity or anything from a fundraising structuring perspective. And so one massive sale to last the lifetime of a project, that's not really how any fundraising happens in the world. There's very rare instances of that being what happens. Instead, people do milestone-based fundraising in some way where they work, they raise, they make some progress, they raise, they make some progress, they raise, and at some point they reach this point of sustainability. And, uh, and I think that's the model that token sales are really moving towards is more sequenced rounds as they make progress over the course of, of the network growing and becoming more decentralized rather than a single large round that's happening. And of course, with that progress comes a slowly increasing price over time. But I think gone are the days of this kind of one private sale and then one massive markup to a public sale. Mm. I think investors have gotten much more savvy and are not open to that anymore. Interesting. I guess uh, one sort of counterpoint to that strategy might be whether it prolongs 
your sort of path to decentralization. Basically, if a larger amount of the tokens on issue are retained by the issuer, it is inherently more centralized. Um, and if you were to sell as much as possible, basically, in one go, perhaps you're able to reach that whatever the threshold is for decentralization more quickly. Do you think that's a relevant consideration? Or? I actually think they're roughly the same time yeah. scale. So you can go and raise $100 million and then spend two years building out your network and then launch it. But that's still two years of the network not being launched mm. and not reaching decentralization. Or over the course of two years, you can raise three or four rounds and then launch your network at the end of that. And your network will still launch at the exact same time. It'll, the token will still be in the hands of the same number of investors, perhaps even more, because you've been able to raise as the profile of your projects increased. By the time you get to that network launch, you know there's the same number of people that have the token. So I think it's more of spacing out the round over time than the same amount of time that it would have taken for you to build it out in the first place, rather than kind of infinitely delaying the launch of the project or you know not getting it in the hands of people. Yeah, I guess I was probably thinking more in terms of uh, raising for a network that's already live but i guess that's probably in the minority of cases anyway. that's the minority of cases yeah. right now i there may be more of that going forward but mm. to this point that's been in the minority of cases as louis was mentioning earlier coinless is just in a really interesting seat where you're seeing a lot of different trends in the ecosystem so i'd love to dive deeper into those particular trends one thing you were mentioning earlier is that token economics is now a consideration of a project stature really what are the trends that you're seeing around token models? What's what's hot right now? What's working? Yeah, I, I don't think there is that much that is really working out there right now. A lot of these projects remain unlaunched that that have raised money in the last couple of years. And so I'm optimistic that in the coming six to 12 months, we'll see a lot of them launch and we'll start to see whether or not these token models really work out. I do think, and I'll go back to what I said earlier about what I consider token economics to be. One part of it is, will this token accrue value if the network grows in value? And, and there's not a lot of data points on that. There's not a lot of token models out there right now that are, are really seeing if that bears out to be true. But And I think the market has supported a lot of tokens that the answer to that question is should be no, that the token will not accrue value if the network succeeds, but the markets just kind of prop them up based on interest and hype. And so I, I do think that's more of a multiple year question of as these networks grow and and kind of change over time. Will that token actually accrue value? Will value get earned for those token holders? And how do you value those tokens? And, and so I guess my, my answer to your question on that point is a little bit of a non-answer that I think we have to wait and see which token models really end up accruing value for the tokens as the networks grow, because it's just too early in the, in the ecosystem right now to have data points on that. The other side, where I think there's more at least theoretical work being done, is on the incentive models. So token networks, uh, not to you know simplify too much, but are ways of coordinating the actions of a distributed and decentralized group of people to do something, to support a network somehow. In those that action coordination, there's two possible categories of people. They're the good people that want to do the right thing for the network and, and are often needed by the network to do the right thing. So think miners, think validators or stakers, or you know every network's got kind of different people that, that do this sort of thing. And then there's potential... Uh, bad actors, attackers that are trying to hurt the network in some way. So the other side of token economics is making sure that there are appropriate incentives so that the good actors, the necessary parties actually do what they have to do. You know, the simplest way to say that would be for some networks, are mining rewards sufficient to keep mm -hmm. people mining? Because the miners are needed for the network to succeed. And so is the, is the mechanism there sufficient to keep them incentivized? And then on the other side, are there appropriate penalties for people that try and do something bad to a network. So if you try and attack the network somehow, are there appropriate economic penalties so that actually affecting the attack would result in an economic net loss to you? And so it's not worthwhile to attack the network. And that's another one, again, I think on kind of the same timeline, a few years, we'll see how these networks do as things shift and more people come in and there's more people trying to, to play with those economic systems. Mm. But I do think there's a lot more theoretical work being done on that now than on the value accrual side. So you see discussions now about Pretty soon, the Bitcoin mining reward is going to go down very close to zero. And is, is that okay? Is that going to cause problems for the network? Will the good actors have issues doing what they need to do to support the network going forward? So that's a, an active topic of conversation right now in the space, which is really interesting. We've also seen a bunch of 51% attacks on different assets or Eclipse attacks. Are the incentives, are the disincentives for doing those things sufficient in these networks? That those are things that a lot of people are thinking about right now. And it's a little bit hard to talk about in the general case because every network is so different and they all have 
different incentive systems and different types of work that need to be done to support the network. But certainly that's something that every token project should be thinking about. Mm. One of the things that I think, uh, you know, if you're thinking about the timeline for when these things might become clear, obviously every project is different, but with the game theoretic kind of considerations, one of the things that I guess you kind of alluded to it there with Bitcoin is that there are so many variables in these systems, like the, the inputs can and will change over time. So it's actually really difficult to look at even what's going on today with a relatively mature network and then forecast forward whether this thing will break under different assumptions, right. basically. Really, I mean, the simplest one, simplest example for that to your, to your point is, you know, we'd like to think of the Bitcoin network as this kind of idealized, decentralized, distributed thing where it just, it's, in, it's, uh, it's wholly self-contained. The incentives are wholly self-contained in the Bitcoin system. But that's not true because the Bitcoin system does not have any concept of the price of Bitcoin as denominated in fiat, right? How much, how many dollars or euros or any other currency is yeah. one Bitcoin worth. That is not self-contained in Bitcoin. And that's how electricity and hardware is priced. That's right. Yeah. So miners have to buy, they don't buy their you know, mining rigs priced in Bitcoin. They buy them from a factory somewhere that price them in yuan or USD or something. And so now all of a sudden there's this externality that this single variable of the conversion rate of Bitcoin to fiat mm. now actually matters in the incentive system for miners. And so it's not a wholly self-contained system. And there's all sorts of external factors, factors external to the Bitcoin network that can affect the incentives on the Bitcoin network. That's part of questioning whether or not these token models are kind of rigorous enough to not be affected by those, those external effects. Yeah. I mean, this is getting maybe slightly off track, but I think that's one of the interesting things about Cosmos is it's as a network, basically have removing a lot of the considerations for the different assets that can live on it and sort of focusing most of the the game theoretic sort of considerations around stakers and validators and atoms rather than you know, it's kind of like an ERC20 on Ethereum can exist, you know, without its entire like ETH-like incentive design. But yeah, the timeline I feel like for working these things out is going to be a lot longer than people expect, especially for Bitcoin. I mean, you won't actually know for, I mean, decades, right? I mean, unless unless the problems become more acute sort of faster than I'd say what most people are expecting. But And Cosmos yeah. is interesting too on that in that it doesn't fully get rid of those second order effects, but it weakens them, mm. right? That Cosmos is still affected by kind of anything Bitcoin related on Cosmos is affected by Bitcoin's second order effects, but Cosmos as a whole is much more weakly affected by those second order effects of, you know, what is the price of a Bitcoin in USD? And so one strategy for building these token economic models is, okay, maybe in some cases we're not going to totally get rid of these external variables from affecting us, but how can we weaken them as much as possible so that it would take instead of you know, a 10% change in this external variable to mess with the network, a hundred percent or a thousand percent or 10,000% change. Mm. And then you're saying we only get in trouble if there's some crazy black swan event in this external variable, as opposed to a more minute change. Yeah. I'd say actually probably Cosmos isn't the best example because they've already got problems where, you know, validators are in a price war trying to attract delegated staking funds. And, you know, they obviously have overhead and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And I guess you've got similar things in EOS where validators aren't storing the entire state because of the amount of transaction activity. It's too expensive. So even these relatively new networks are already facing incentive problems. Yeah, let's uh, wrangle <laughs> this back into trends. So like I mentioned, you guys are still, you guys are in an interesting seat, but it's obviously been a bear market when it comes to new projects that are trying to raise capital. How have you seen, you know, the pure gross, like number of projects approach you change over the last couple, last 18 months or so? And how has the quality of those projects shifted over time? The gross number of projects that have approached us has gone down dramatically in the last 18 months. What's interesting though, is that the number of what I would consider to be on their surface, high quality projects and whether or not they, you know, are, are all at the exact same level is up in the air, but kind of high quality projects that have strong signals on those six points that we mentioned earlier, that actually really has not changed that much. There were not that many in 2017. There are still not that many today. And what's really happened is that the bottom of the market has dropped out. So all of these low quality projects mm -hmm. in a bear market, it's just less appealing for them to go and try and raise money. So we've seen the total gross number of projects go down dramatically, but the number of high quality leads that we see has stayed pretty much constant throughout. Um, in terms of 
token sale activity. You know, there was a, a little bit of a crash in crypto towards towards the end of last year. Just a tad. Just a tad. And what we saw was all of these projects that we were talking to about running sales in Q3 or Q4 of last year, they came to us and said, okay, we're delaying our sale. No one wants to run a sale right after a big crash. It's just not good messaging. It doesn't you know look good for the sale. But we're going to run the sale next year. We're not waiting for a bull market. We're just waiting for the market to stabilize. And we heard this from every project we were talking to. We're going to raise, we're going to raise, but we just want a stable market, not necessarily a crazy hyped up market. And that's turned out to be totally true. So now this year, our pipeline is chock full with great projects that are really interested in running sales this year. It's stood the test that the market has not gotten much better price-wise as a whole since you know the end of last year. But what has happened is it just feels a lot more stable. It's not in this kind of post-crash dumps that it was. And so projects are now interested in, in raising again based on the stability of the market. One analogy I think is not bad for historical context is that in 2013, there was a massive run-up in Bitcoin prices and, uh, and it crashed. And for basically, in my view, the entire year of 2014, obviously this is a little bit subjective, everyone was just upset for a whole year. Like people were angry, people were leaving the space. It was like a very mopey period in the space, all of 2014, and the price did not move much. And then 2015, for almost the full year, the price also didn't move that much. It was pretty stable. It actually went down for a little bit for most of the year, but it felt way more positive in the space, way more generative. People were building things. People were positive. You know, this stuff was the future. And then we saw a big run up going into 2016. And, you know, we, we know the story from there. And if I were to apply that to today, obviously there was a run up, there was a crash. It feels to me like the 2014 equivalent, the, the really down in the dumps equivalent really only lasted a few months, hmm. kind of Q3, Q4 last year, maybe through January this year. And you know the price has still not gone up of most crypto assets in the last couple of months, but it does just feel, and again, very subjectively, very positive right now. People are building, people are excited. I see a new project, token or otherwise, every day that catches my attention, I think is really interesting. And so it feels more like 2015 now than 2014, where it's it's a good time in the space. People feel positive. People are interested. And hopefully that eventually leads to uh, another run-up. But I'm most excited that it seems like this cycle, the the really sad period, got compressed. And we didn't have to deal with a full year of, uh, of everyone in the space being upset. Mm -hmm. Might not be over yet, though. So can't, can't call it too soon. But yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Well, how, how big would you say the, the pipeline of projects that you guys are looking at is in total? It really depends on how you define pipeline. Mm -hmm. In terms of that like really high quality tier people that we're, we're really excited to work with. There are dozens of great projects in our pipeline right now that we're talking to about sales. And, and those range from, you know, very soon to, you know, a little bit further out and, and they're just getting started early, but there's a lot of exciting projects out there right now. Andy, you've actually written some great blogs about token M&A. What inspired you to write those blogs? Is this something that's eminent? How do you envision that checking out? It goes back to these, I, I love these incentive questions, right? That we were talking about earlier of, you know, how do these networks actually work? And one thing, and going back to, to something we said earlier, these token networks are ways of coordinating decentralized networks of people. When you've got corporations, they're very centralized and decisions are made by a single person or a small set of people, a board of directors or a CEO, or, or someone makes a, a decision about a company. And so when you see M&A, which makes sense for in a lot of contexts for a lot of reasons. So actually taking a step back here, why would you ever do a merger or an acquisition, right? And there's there's a variety of reasons that companies do this, but one of which is there's some sort of, and not to use the, the business trope here, but some sort of synergy, right? Two companies together, for some reason, are better than they would have been separately. And that feels possible to me in, in crypto as well. Something really straightforward might be that, and, and again, a little bit oversimplified, but one network has been really good at building a user base, but their token model doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's not clear that the token's going to accrue value. And another network that does something very similar has struggled to get users, but has a really interesting model that feels like it might work. Put those two things together, you've got something really interesting there. And so that it feels like token network mergers or acquisitions should be possible to enable, again, synergies like that. But it's unclear, I think, to this point, how you would affect a merger or an acquisition in the token space because who makes that decision? There's no CEO of the network. There's no board of directors of the network that can just say we're merging networks and at least in the kind of ideal token network case and make it happen. My 
initial stab at an answer here and, and could be totally wrong is when you want to merge token networks or have one token network acquire another, the people that make the decision are actually the people on the network, the people that own the tokens of the network. And when you're buying a network, there's no asset of the network that you're buying. Instead, you're buying the users and you're buying the the kind of faith that those users have in that asset that they own. And when I say you're buying those users, you're not buying them from someone else. No one owns those users. Those users are sovereign entities that, that own these tokens. So what you're doing is you're buying the users from themselves. You have to convince the people on the target network to come over to your own network. So again, going back to that example, let's take the good token economic network and the big user network. And let's say the, the good token economic network wants to buy the kind of good user network and get those users over. There's no one they have to convince other than all of those individual users themselves. And so they have to build some sort of incentive system. And I know this is a little bit kind of pie in the sky, head in the clouds here. They have to build some sort of incentive system to get those users to transition over to their network. And so that's that's my view of how token M&A will work at a very high level is that it's really these two autonomous sovereign groups of users interacting with each other in some way and being willing to offer incentives. So you can imagine very simply, and, and again, there's, there's more complicated ways to get at this, all of those users in the, the kind of acquirer network saying, hey, I'm going to, I think this is going to add a lot of value if we merge these networks. So I'm going to take half my tokens and I'm going to tell everyone else in this network to take half their tokens and just put them into a pool for these users to get for free if they come over to this network. Mm -hmm. So if you burn your tokens on the old network, if you leave, if you exit the old network and you come to this network, you're going to get some free tokens here. And if you design the incentives well enough, then those users will do so. And you will have basically affected an M&A transaction there. I love thinking about this stuff. I think it's really interesting. I think it will happen at some point that these networks will start to interact with each other in ways that feel more like the ways corporations interact with each other. It doesn't feel terribly imminent to me, in part because there are not a lot of users on a lot of these networks that are really kind of active participants on the network. And so it's unclear that the ingredients are really there to build these sorts of interactions. I don't think actually affecting the transactions is going to, or, you know, interactions is going to happen soon. But what I do think is that people that are designing token networks need to be thinking about these possibilities. Because if you want to keep your token network independent and what all of these things, you have to build mechanisms to prevent these sorts of interactions from happening, even if they're unlikely to happen for quite a while. Uh, I think it's important in token network design to be thinking about how these networks could interact in the future and making sure that however your network is designed is appropriate for, for how you know, the philosophy of that network and how it should be run. Yeah, I think, you know, right now we're probably, this is probably not something we're see this business cycle, if you want to call it that, but perhaps in the next one, these networks will be a little bit more mature and uh, we can see this kind of activity. Right now, if, to your point, if you just look at the voter turnouts on, you know, maybe I think ZeroX had some like proposal, they're, they're pretty atrociously low, right? And not only do you need people to turn out to actually uh, vote on these very large governance changes, you need to convince these users to be active participants in this new network, the Proforma network, right? So anyways, I think once these things get a little bit more mature, perhaps uh, it's, it's not too far-fetched. Yeah. Switching gears slightly, something that we've seen a bit more of, it's kind of a sort of strategy and I guess competitive question as well. Binance Launchpad, the initial exchange offering, I think that's what the kids are calling it these days. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So I guess, do you have any high level thoughts on that? How do you think about perhaps CoinList working with exchanges that have a large number of users and I guess distribution? Is there like an interesting partnership opportunity there? Yeah. I guess what what's your kind of take on all of that? It's certainly early for mm. IEOs and, and they're really just a couple months old. So we'll see how they start to pan out. We've yet to really see someone feel confident in their ability to make these happen in a compliant manner in the United States. And that's where a lot of our attention is focused. So there's a little bit of kind of an in, innate incompatibility there that we would love to find a way to, to resolve. Initial exchange offering is effectively a public offering, right? It is a lot <laughs> like what IPOs look like uh, on stock exchanges. And uh, in that sense, when you frame it that way, it feels inevitable that there will be something like that. IPOs have developed and have been reasonably effective, you know, at, at raising capital for companies and distributing equity to investors. And so that seems interesting. Maybe even a better analogy in, in certain ways is this kind of recent direct listing trend in the equity markets that people like Spotify and Slack and others 
are just going and putting the tokens, putting the tokens, the equity out there on these exchanges. And that's a little bit more of what an IEO looks like in a lot of ways. Mm. So it feels like there is something there that will exist. Our question, it goes back to, you know, the, the one that's, that's always, always fun to talk about, which is how can you make it work from a compliant perspective? It's something we're working through. We'd love to find a way to make it happen. But for the tokens and networks we work with, we haven't found a way yet. Who do you guys run into when you're both out there, like trying to pitch an issuer to come and uh, use you as a technology provider? Do you ever run into Galaxy or who are, who are like the competitors? For a lot of token issuers, we don't have a lot of competitors for a lot of the deals that we do because our platform is really start to finish from the compliance to the transactions, document signing, token distribution, some marketing support occasionally. And, uh, and not a lot of people can really offer that and certainly not with the same community and with the same uh, background that we have. There are other ways to do pieces of that. So there are lots of compliance service providers. There are lots of people that can you know, help you get documents signed and get that across the finish line. But most of the time we're, uh, and I, you know, I mean this in the, the least obnoxious way possible, we're the pretty obvious choice for a lot of the issuers that we work with because we've managed to do these sales really effectively in the past and, and expect to be able to do so in the future. But I also expect that competitive landscape to change dramatically over time as, uh, as the space grows and there's more and more opportunity. Yeah, you guys haven't gotten into like a pure advisory business or really like the investment banking model, right? But I, I believe that's sort of, you had mentioned this earlier, that there's three different products that Coinless uh, offers. And then this third product that you're going to offer quite soon is a secondary market sort of service. So this rolls out the vision for Coinless to be a full service investment bank. Obviously, you're going to do that in a compliant manner. You're going to uh, structure that uh, where uh, you're going to structure your regulatory strategy to to meet those demands. But what is the vision for uh, Coinless to fill all those gaps that an investment bank could do? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We our first priority is making sure that we stay in compliance with with the law and regulations. But that is the vision that we would love to roll out: is be the one stop shop for token issuers for whatever they need. And again, whether that's helping them raise money initially, whether that's helping them build community, whether that's helping them get secondary liquidity and enable markets for their asset. We want to be able to do all of that. And so there's an infinite array of services you can imagine, ranging from technology services to community services to investment banking services. We want to be able to do everything. And for us, a lot of the focus right now is making sure that we're allowed to do so um, under the law and then that we have the capabilities in-house to to make that happen. You're exactly right. That is that is the vision. And you know, we really think of ourselves as being a trusted resource for token issuers and then a one-stop shop for whatever it is that they need that is not something that they should be building or should need to be building a competency in themselves. Again, infrastructure to run hackathons, not something every token issuer should need to build. Infrastructure to you know, do due diligence on their investors, not something every token issuer should need to build. Infrastructure for secondary trading of their own asset, not something every token issuer should need to build. Uh, and so we want to be able to do all of that. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a glimpse into your changing regulatory strategy to become that full stack investment bank? Yeah. So as a lot of people talk about broker dealer license, really important in the crypto space, if we're dealing with securities and enables you to do a lot of interesting activities. And so we are actively uh, working towards attaining that license. And then along with that, an alternative trading system license, which is allows you to be a secondary trading venue for certain securities. And we're, we're working towards all of those things across the board. And then an endless array of other licenses that are out there, whether mm-hmm. it's money transmission licenses or a bit license in New York, and, and really making sure that uh, no matter where we're operating, we are allowed to do so. One of the things we've seen is a number of larger crypto companies acquiring entities that have these licenses. Have you considered that? What are the dynamics around that? Is that a silver bullet? Uh, we've certainly considered that it is not a silver bullet. Mm. Uh, in in most cases, when you acquire a regulated entity, uh, you need to go through a reapproval process of some sort. You know, resulting from the change of control of that entity and potentially new business lines that it is, which uh, it would almost undoubtedly in. be a new business line. Right, mm. and so uh, it ends up being not terribly different from just doing it de novo from the very beginning. But in some cases, there are potential time savings or, or effort savings, and and I think one of the biggest reasons to do so is bring in a team of people that is experienced in a very adjacent business and uh, and add them to the team. So certainly something we've looked at in certain cases, it may make sense, but unfortunately not a silver bullet. How do you think about procuring talent for this broader vision? Are you going out to Wall Street and trying to convert them into crypto heads or are you trying to convert crypto heads into bankers? Yeah, all of the above. It's a good question. I think a lot of our benefits are from coming from uh, both directions there, right? That we have some people that our, our Wall Street natives that have come to crypto. We've got some people that are crypto natives that are interested now in the more financial and infrastructure side of things. 
And that's where the best ideas come from is when those two sides sit down and have conversations. And, you know, a crypto person says, I had a crazy idea. What if we tried to do something like this? And the Wall Street person says, actually, that's just like what we used to do, you know, in some very adjacent thing. Or the Wall Street person says, I want to bring this to crypto. And the crypto person says, well, it's very similar to something that already happened in crypto. So those are really generative conversations. And uh, we've been fortunate to be able to attract people from, from both sides of that, that aisle and, uh, and plan to keep doing so. I don't think building a pure crypto native company or a pure Wall Street native company is the right way to build uh, a company in the crypto financial services space. Mm-hmm. And what's the headcount right now at Coinlist? We're about 25. Okay. Plus and or minus a couple. How do you see that headcount expanding um, as you roll this vision out? Yeah, it could grow really big, but it will really be in response to the business lines that we launch mm-hmm. and the, the approvals that we get. And so doing things like launching a secondary trading venue requires a lot of headcount. And we are prepared to and ready to hire for those positions. For some other businesses, there's less headcount required and they're more kind of natively technology scalable. And so we'll, we'll grow as, as we launch those business lines and are approved for them. Do you have a, a view on whether basically in, within the United States, especially the government should legislate to create crypto specific laws around token issuance? Yeah. I think it really depends on the exact question that needs to be answered. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it feels like we're just a half step away from it being clear that something that you know we as an industry want to do is okay. And all that's really needed is some amount of regulatory guidance confirming that perspective, saying, yes, this is a gray area in the law, but you're right, this is what you need to do. So that could be SEC guidance or CFTC guidance or FinCEN guidance or, or anyone else. In some cases, it feels like the laws really just don't apply. And so we need new laws to be written and a legislative approach may be better. But I think a smart regulatory strategy for any crypto company involves making that decision. First of all, where are the risks that you're willing to take? But then after that, if you do require changes, are those changes administrative rulemaking changes or administrative guidance changes, or are they legislative changes? There are pros and cons to both. They have different timelines. They have different people you need to convince. There's different approaches to all of that. But it really depends on what exactly you're going for. And you might not get the law that you want. You might not get the law you want. You might not get the guidance that you want. And so, you know, thinking about overused word here on the show for me, but, you know, thinking about the incentives of the people that you're talking to and and what they want out of it is really important. And and, uh, I think a smart strategy in D.C. or in, you know, wherever your your state capital happens to be or or international uh, is in thinking about who you're talking to, what they want, what they need to get comfortable with and, and who the right people are to approach for any given change that you want to enact. Final question for me, is XRP a security? (laughs) Yeah, I have certainly no opinion on that. But I do think that more broadly, there are a lot of tokens out there in the market Mm. that have really just skirted that issue. And we've only recently started to see the SEC begin to bring enforcement actions against this. And one interesting dynamic there is that the first set of SEC enforcement actions that happened in the space were all about things, including fraud. Yes. They went after these, these tokens, these projects or... The worst you know, cases. Unlicensed broker-dealers that yeah. were not only perhaps violating some sort of mm-hmm. specific securities law or something, but also criminal, fraudulent, yeah. criminal, right. Yeah. And so those were smart cases to start with. We're causing massive issues for the space. The most recent wave of SEC enforcement actions has been against people that were violating securities laws, but were not. The SEC did not bring allegations of fraud against them. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. That indicates that the SEC has gotten comfortable with a pure securities law argument for a lot of these tokens, mm. rather than needing kind of the fraudulent argument to backstop it as well. I guess, sorry, I have one more, I guess it's a commentary question that you may or may not want to answer. But so you, you guys run on the assumption that everything that goes through your platform is security. Uh, that sounds fair enough. There seems to be not much of a difference between the assets that you guys have had run through your platform and some of the things that are now listed on the so-called highly regulatory sound exchanges like Coinbase, right? Some of them did public ICOs, you know, like BAT is an example. Why do you think they are now comfortable to list these things? Yeah. So without commenting on any one party in particular, we do believe, and I think most people in the space do, that it is possible for something to start as a security and become a non-security over time. And in fact, the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, has said that. Uh, fairly explicitly in a speech a couple times, I think early last year in Philadelphia and San Diego, he, he mentioned that it's possible for this transition to happen. There's a big question about when and how that transition happens from being a security to a non-security, but it's totally plausible that a token did something that looked a lot like a securities offering or was a securities offering explicitly. And then at some point in the future, 
has crossed this line, which again is a little bit nebulous right now, but has crossed this line into being a non-security and all sorts of smart regulated parties can get really comfortable with that fact. And so I don't think that's a contradiction that you know certain highly regulated, highly thoughtful exchanges or other places with great legal teams uh, have made a determination that certain assets are non-securities. And that's uh, again, a facts and circumstances based analysis. They're looking at it at that specific time. What they did in the past does not necessarily indicate whether or not it's a security today. There may be other risks associated with what they did in the past, but it doesn't generally have any bearing on whether or not at the current moment there is security. Great. Final two questions for me. Is there some sort of geography that is attractive for you to perhaps like migrate some of your business to some geography that seems legitimate yet uh, has a progressive regulatory environment where, you know, CoinList would really thrive? So by legitimate, I mean, you know, not like Belize or Malta where it would potentially hurt the reputation of your business, but, uh, you know, by and regulatory progressive means they're very crypto forward, but developed nation. Yeah, so we absolutely, there are a bunch of interesting jurisdictions. For us, it's less about migrating business and more about expanding business. We think what we do in the US today is the right thing to be doing in the US. There's a lot of reasons to operate in the US, including the fact that our whole team lives here. There's a lot of capital in the US that's available. There's a lot of projects in the US that are building from the US jurisdiction. And so we really want to be able to address the US as fully as possible. And frankly, for those reasons, our team, the number of projects and the number of investors, the amount of capital, We've really focused in the U.S. and we don't plan to ever migrate business away from that. What we do think is that there are a lot of opportunities for us to do things internationally. One thing that we've done there, again, is this Reg S offering where we've built uh, accreditation or, or whatever the similar rule is in these, these countries, standards for a bunch of different jurisdictions. And that's a good first step. From there, we can start to evaluate whether or not it makes sense to more explicitly address and start to operate in specific jurisdictions. But it'll be more of a, a business expansion. It will still need to be in accord with what we do in the US. And it'll, it'll be more of kind of a business development decision than it will be us taking a regulatory stance that we would rather be operating in this jurisdiction. And, and to more directly answer your question, there are places where I think there is opportunity either on the project front or the investor front that we would want to approach and start to operate more actively. But we wouldn't be doing that because of the regulatory situation there. We would make that decision that we want to address those jurisdictions. And then we would do whatever it takes to make sure that we're allowed to address those jurisdictions. Uh, rather than making the decision from a regulatory first mindset. The, the tail's not wagging the dog in this case. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Final, well, it's not really a question. Are there any jobs that you would like to advertise to the listeners of this podcast? Oh, that's a great one. My favorite question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a couple. So we just opened up a position really exciting for a business operations associate at CoinList. And, uh, and we're bringing in someone on the business side to help us deal with the best token issuers in the world and help them facilitate their token sales really exciting position for someone with a little bit of experience in tech or banking or consulting or something to come in and, and be at the forefront and on the front lines of these offerings. And then, of course, we are always hiring engineers and, uh, and many other positions. Uh, and if you are interested, coinlist.co slash jobs. Awesome. Thanks for joining, Andy. Where can people get in touch with you or read about the work that you're doing? Uh, yeah, so coinlist.co, coinlist.co uh, is where you can find out everything about Coinlist. On Twitter, I'm Andy underscore Bromberg. Feel free to shoot me a message or at mention me. Always happy to, uh, to chat. And then I write things on Medium occasionally as well. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about Coinlist, check out the show notes included in your podcast. And remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.